This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 70. Today we welcome Dan Wallace to discuss the challenges of New Testament textual criticism in the 21st century. This episode is brought to you by the Confessional Presbyterian, a journal for discussion of Presbyterian doctrine and practice, online at cpjournal.com. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. To read more about how you can help, please visit reformedforum.org support. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and we have an excellent program scheduled today. I have with me a regular, Nick Batzig, who is a church planter in Richmond Hill, Georgia. How are you doing, Nick? Uh, it's good to be on, Camden. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We also have a new uh, panelist today. We are pleased to welcome Josh Walker, who's an MDiv student at RTS Jackson. He's also an author at bringthebooks.org. It's a pleasure to have you on, Josh. Hey, thanks for um, bringing me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it's going to be a good one today because we have Dr. Daniel B. Wallace, who's professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's also the executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, a highly respected scholar in his field. It's a very, uh, it's a big honor to have you on with us, Dr. Wallace. We're pleased to have you. Camden, the honor's all mine. Thank you for inviting me on. We're welcome to have you on, and we're very excited to talk about an article in the latest issue of JETS, which is entitled Challenges in New New Testament Textual Criticism for the 21st Century. A very hot topic and something that uh, study, a field of study that has been shifting lately, and it's one that we're going to be very excited to talk to today. A lot of issues at stake. But before we get going, did we have any new books that we need to mention? Um Perspectives on the Ending of Mark, Four Views, um, is a new book out by Broadman and Holman Academic, and Dr. Wallace is one of the um, authors in one of those chapters, along with um, other contributing authors, Daryl Bach, um, and the editor is um, David Allen Black. And then I also saw some books coming out by Baker Academic, um, A Reader's Guide to Calvin's Institute by Tony Lane. Looks like that'll be coming out soon. And then The Reformed Thought on Freedom, the concept of free choice in early modern reform theology that's that coming out. Good. And then, um, let's see, there's one out um, coming out by Baker Academic also by uh, Michael Bird. Are you the one who is to come? The historical Jesus and the messianic question. That'll be interesting. Yeah, from yeah. Michael Bird, that will be interesting. Uh, that'll be an interesting one to read. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt you guys, but can I get the details on that book about uh, free will? Yeah, um, it's um, published by Baker Academic, and the complete title is um, Reformed Thought on Freedom, and then the subtitle is The Concept of Free Choice in Early Modern Reformed Thought, and the authors have names that I'm not able to pronounce. It looks like um, Willem J. Van... Van Gameren? No, Van Esselt, maybe, A-S-S-E-L-T... And then J. Martin um, Back, maybe, Bach, B-A-C, um, is the other author. So I, I assume there. Well, that's terrific. I teach uh, Romans every year, and uh, when we get into Romans 9, I get a lot of resistance about some things. So oh, yeah. it's great to, great to look through that book. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so keep an eye on those. You can also visit the website. We'll have uh, links and a bibliography there uh, for people if you want to uh, check those out. 
I wanted to mention that this episode is brought to you, in part at least, by the Confessional Presbyterian Journal, which is now entering its fifth year. We've mentioned that the fifth volume that's going to be coming out has a much-anticipated article by Dr. David Van Drunen. Uh, but several of the past issues of the CPJ have addressed what has become known as the Reformed Regulative Principle of Worship, which is a very important Reformed distinctive. In the 2006 and 07 issues of the CPJ, you can find a very lengthy survey covering the last 60 years of the literature of this principle, both pro and con, tracing its obscure but important resurgence in a 1946 study for the OPC authored by John Murray to the latest material in print in 2007. The RPW, as it's often called, is a very important thing, and it's a hot topic, and you can find a bunch of stuff in the journal, especially from 06 and 07, on this subject. Now, the RPW, Nick, of course, very important, isn't it? It is. Um, it's difficult to really nail down to what exactly the Bible regulates and what it doesn't. That's why we need to study, you know, the issue carefully. I think the, um, you know, exclusive psalmist would say um, that um, you know, the Bible regulates psalms only, and yet there are many within our own camp who um, hold very tightly, myself included, to the regulative principle of worship, that we only worship God the way that He is to be worshipped according to Scripture, as He has revealed how He wishes to be worshipped, and yet I believe that instrumental accompaniment is a circumstance of worship and part of the regulative principle. Um, so these these are issues we need to study out to know um, how our God is to be worshipped. And, you know, He's a holy God, and it definitely matters. Absolutely. And you can find a bunch of scholarly research in the Confessional Presbyterian Journal and come up to speed on that. I know it was something that I, uh, it, it was kind of strange when I came to Reformed thinking, Reformed theology, to hear about the regulative principle. And it wasn't until I, I read some things and had some people explain some of the issues to me that it really made sense, and then I've come to hold it very dear. Uh, and so the journal articles can help you on that, seeing how it's developed in history as well. Uh, but today we have a wonderful discussion lined up. We're going to be speaking about New Testament textual criticism. It's probably a field that causes quite a bit of division in seminaries. There are people that fall asleep in class and others who are have their eyes wide open with rapt attention. I'm one of the latter. <laughs> and uh, we're very excited to speak about uh, the shifts in this field and what the challenges are in the 21st century. Dr. Wallace, as I had mentioned, is highly regarded in his field in New Testament studies. He's the author of several books. And many of you probably know him from his workbook for New Testament syntax and other related books in uh, Greek uh, studies. And we're excited to have him on the show. But Josh, it was first your idea to discuss this article on Christ the Center. And what drew you to it? Well, um, Dr. Wallace, I um, had a chance to see the actual presentation live last year at ETS, and it was um, interesting to um, to me about textual criticism. I was fairly um, new to the discipline. And um, actually, this last semester here at um, Reformed Theological Seminary, I've been taking an um, independent study with Dr. Guy Waters, on um, textual criticism. It's um, New Testament studies are my area of interest, and I didn't know a lot about it, so I wanted to look into it, and I noticed um, in the latest Jets article um, came out with Dr. Wallace's um, piece, and it was um, a great piece written well and a lot of um, pointed things to talk about, so I thought it'd be great for us to bring him on and talk about it. 
Yeah, I do too. This is going to be interesting. Uh, this book, uh, this article is laid out in uh, several sections. We're going to talk about the postmodern intrusions into New Testament textual criticisms, as well as the role of theology, and all the tasks that remain for us as New Testament scholars, what there is left for the church to do uh, in the face of these challenges. But Dr. Wallace, as we get started, um, the, the, the section that interested me the most, perhaps, was this first one on the postmodern intrusions. I wanted to ask you, what is at risk, uh, given the shifts in uh, postmodern thought and how they've impacted theology in general, uh, what is at risk in shifting towards a postmodern perspective when we're looking at the New Testament? Well, let me uh, even reframe the question and say, what's at risk if we go in that direction, and what's at risk if we take a modernist view, because I mm-hmm. think there are risks in both right. approaches. Uh, right. What's at risk with a, a postmodern uh, approach is that we no longer consider the autographic text, or to give a very clear definition of what that means, the original text, when it left the hands of the author to the readers. Uh, and uh, that, that it no longer becomes a concern to... Uh, uh, postmoderns, they are concerned with what has happened to the text afterwards. It's almost the banishment of the author, as uh, E.D. Hirsch uh, spoke about in his book, Validity and Interpretation. Uh, there's a greater concern for the social constructs of early Christians and how they wrestled with things, uh, both in terms of belief and practice. And uh, that that's, I think that's, the, to me, that's the major concern that I have with uh, the direction that postmodern thought is going in terms of uh, academic studies and New Testament textual criticism in, in particular. But a second uh, concern is that we've got uh, a rather uh, overarching skepticism within postmodernism where uh, uh, postmoderns are so skeptical about so much that they end up having a view of saying everything is possible but nothing is probable. And that kind of a view creates uh, responses like what Bart Ehrman has said, that we just have no idea what the original text said in any place. Uh, and consequently, there's this sense out there that we can't possibly get back to the original with any degree of certainty because it's all up for grabs. And uh, when Ehrman and I debated at the Greer Herd uh, Forum in uh, New Orleans uh, last year, uh, he said... Uh, yeah, that's true. That there, there's not that many textual variants that are uh, significantly uh, very important, and sometimes the words don't change that much. But maybe Paul left out a knot here, and then the scribes added it, or vice versa. That would be hugely important. Well, he's, he's I, I think, speaking about things that uh, were not really the issues of the text in almost any place. So he's almost making up textual variants to say, uh, this is what could have been, but we're just not sure what it is. That kind of a skepticism is the kind of a world that we're facing today, uh, where every view is equally possible, nothing is plausible. And uh, and yet, pragmatically, we don't live like that. I don't go down and uh, if I need to uh, get some uh, groceries, I don't say, you know, all these brands are exactly the same as far as I'm concerned. No, I have certain preferences, and those preferences aren't always on taste. Sometimes it's on health, you know. So uh, <laughs> the way we live is not that way, where we treat everything as uh, of equal value, and we're skeptical about all of it. But when it comes to this area, that's the problem. A third area in which postmodernism, I think, is having an impact on biblical studies and textual criticism in particular is that there's a stronger sense of community 
uh, in terms of uh, collaborative effort. And I see that as a very positive result of postmodernism. And we could almost add a fourth, but it really hasn't quite affected textual criticism yet, which is uh, that postmodernism puts a stronger emphasis on a holistic view of uh, human beings rather than modernism, which puts an emphasis on our cognitive abilities. And uh, what what that does is it means the way we would treat uh, texture variants, I suppose, would be to wrestle with it, not just cognitively, but behaviorally and spiritually and things like that. I think evangelicals have done that in terms of the results of the variants anyway, but um, it, it, that hasn't really impacted it yet. Now, on the other side, modernism, the, 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 I think one of the greatest weaknesses of modernism when it comes to this discipline is that it is so isolationist with reference to individual scholars working on things rather than feeling like we can have a collaborative effort that uh, it, it ends up being uh, it, it, it slows the whole process down uh, at this stage in history if we were to transcribe the data of every single manuscript that has been uh, photographed it would take uh, 400 man years to do that Wow. And uh, the fact is that we've hardly even begun that task. There's only been one scholar ever to do uh, all of the manuscripts, collate all the manuscripts of any book of the New Testament. That was uh, Herman Hoskier who did it on the book of Revelation. It took him 30 years uh, from 1899 to 1929. Uh, Hoskier chose Revelation, I think, because it had fewer manuscripts than any other book of the New Testament, so it was an easier task. But because we haven't done our collaborative efforts, we haven't worked together, we could have put uh, 100 scholars working all, on all this data and could have gotten the task done in four years. And yet the, the, the task still remains for us to do, I think because of a very modernist approach towards uh, the discipline that has held sway for a long, long time. Uh, my uh, Center for the Study of New Testament uh, Manuscripts is working on collaborative efforts with others, and one of our chief goals, in fact, is to get every single manuscript photographed mm -hmm. and then every single manuscript uh, transcribed or collated, but with software that a team in Chicago is developing for us so that we can reduce those 400 man years down to two years. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the era that we live in with the technological advances, and I'm familiar with a little bit of the work that the the Hebrew Institute at Westminster uh, is involved in. It's called now the J. Allen Grove Center. Uh, and, and we're in an unprecedented era where we can uh, analyze and study the biblical texts with technology that just wasn't even thought of 10 or 15 yeah. years ago. It's very exciting, as long as we still have people who are committed to the biblical text. Uh, increasingly, year after year, more and more people are dropping out from interest in the uh, uh, biblical languages. Uh, and this, of course, normally goes hand-in-hand uh, -hand with uh, liberal scholarship, but it's uh, happening more as an inroad into evangelical schools as well. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that has a, a total dire effect on textual criticism. <laughs> I was at a debate last November between Bart Ehrman and um, Dr. James White. And in that debate, um, Ehrman mentioned that he was um, growing even more skeptical about the existence of what we call original autographs. Mm -hmm. could, you, could you speak to that and um, about the dangers that that has for the textual critical project? Yeah, there's, there's really a couple of issues that uh, uh, Ehrman is talking about. One is that uh, the original text has been defined in multiple ways now that most scholars 
uh, have to define it more carefully than just call it the original text. For example, is it the original draft of a document that an author still uh, revised and then later published? What What is the uh, original text? Um, David Parker, who holds to very similar views to Irma on this point, uh, David Parker argued was that he, he gave analogies in his book, The Living Text of the Gospels, of um, how impossible it is to uh, get back to an original text of something. He spoke about uh, Shakespeare's plays uh, and about Mozart's uh, operas. And he said when Shakespeare would do a play, he would be down at the globe and be, uh, uh, you know, he'd write the, uh, uh, the, 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 the play and then the actors would perform it and he'd be fine-tuning it, tweaking it. His handwriting would be all over the, the document. And so the question that uh, Parker raised is, which is the original text of Shakespeare's play for this particular one? Same thing with Mozart's operas, that he'd, he'd tweak it as it was in production. And uh, Parker felt that those illustrations were adequate to describe what happens with the New Testament documents. The, the, the problem is that the fundamental difference between the New Testament and Shakespeare and Mozart, on the other hand, is that the New Testament documents were all documents that were dispatched to a readership that was removed from the author. That's the whole point of writing uh, a document, uh, typically, is that it's not for, uh, you don't write a, a, a note that's going to be handed to somebody that you're going to talk about right then, uh, unless it's a, a discussion point kind of thing. But the New Testament documents, you know, most of these things are, are letters. Uh, the Gospels were sent to a different location. Revelation was sent to a different location. Uh, Acts as well. That um, once it leaves the hands of the author, and is on the way towards the readers, that is when that is considered to be the autographic text, the original text. And uh, Eldon Epp, who is another uh, leader in, in this kind of postmodern skepticism about textual criticism, and a very fine uh, uh, textual scholar, uh, has come up with, he wrote an article dealing with a number of different ways in which you wrestle with what is called the original text. But what, even in that one where he was trying to say we, we shouldn't be using this term anymore, he's, he couldn't quite get away from saying that document that uh, leaves the hands of the author on its way to the readers is called the autographic text. And so I think sometimes this is just a terminological issue. If we call it the autographs, the autographic text, everybody, including Epp and Parker and Ehrman, know what we're talking about. If we call it the original text, those who are not within the discipline understand, well, that's that, that manuscript when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians and it was dispatched, that's what left Paul's hand. And so I think sometimes these guys are trying to complicate things and make it more skeptical by far than it really needs to be. Um, Dr. Wallace, could I ask just a very basic question about um, uh, the right use of textual criticism? Um, how, how do you avoid subjectivity in textual criticism? Um, for instance, I was talking to one well-known um, text-critical scholar, and, he, and I asked him, so what, um, what, textual, um, what text do you prefer? And he said, well, I haven't put it together yet. And, um, you know, reading Metzger's commentary on the uh, Nestle-Alon text, um, oftentimes they'll pick a, what, what is, appears to be a worse reading and say, well, we just thought this should be the reading. And it's, there's not a whole lot of 
um, well-thought-out investigation. How, for, for those of us who don't know much about textual criticism and how to approach it, how do we, um, how do we avoid just, uh, just subjectivity and just, I think this is better, I think this should be part of the Bible and this shouldn't be? Um, I know that's a huge question, but uh, it's the question a lot of people have. That's a great question. I, I would answer it on several different uh, levels, probably. Uh, the, the first thing I would say is subjectivity is going to be unavoidable simply because we do not have the autographic texts. We have to uh, make decisions on the basis of the available evidence. And uh, that doesn't mean that uh, the subjectivity or our uncertainty needs to be very high in most places. And to give a, a, a good illustration of this, the United Bible Society's text has something like uh, 1,400 textual problems when there are as many as 400,000, perhaps even more, textual variants among our New Testament manuscripts. Now, if they're going to give just 1,400 textual problems, everything else they have pretty much decided we, we know what the text says. And so you, you get the sense when you read Metzger's textual commentary that, gee, we just kind of flipped a coin, we're not sure which way to go on some of those uh, problems. And those are always, by definition, the more difficult ones or the more uh, interesting problems, maybe the more significant ones. But uh, that doesn't mean that there's this tremendous subjectivity across the board. And uh, again, this gets into how we think about uh, certainty and uh, are all views equally possible or are some views more likely than others. One of the things that uh, Westcott and Hort developed was the, the way they looked at the manuscripts was actually uh, to begin with uh, the internal evidence of the readings. And what they said was, as we look at uh, various textual problems, we notice that uh, there are some where the, where the original text is just screams out, it is so patently obvious that we have a moral certainty that that's original. Then they would check which manuscripts had that wording, and something, I'm going to just give some general numbers here that are made up, but gives the, uh, gives the uh, illustration of the analogy here. Say seven out of ten times the manuscripts that they uh, looked at that had what they had already considered to be the original reading would be all often be their two favorite manuscripts. Well, in say three out of ten times, it's very difficult to tell what the original text is on the basis of internal evidence. In that case, you go with your better witnesses, the witnesses that have already got a proven pedigree. And that leads me uh, to my third point, which is this is what, what Hort established long ago that uh, decisions or judgments about readings must be based on a knowledge of the manuscripts. And what we're uh, doing today is uh, the, the approach towards sexual criticism today that's uh, the standard is called reasoned eclecticism. And what that essentially means is scholars are looking at both the manuscripts, the external evidence, and internal evidence, what are the scribes likely to do, what is the biblical author likely to do, and they're comparing those two aspects, and in each given place they're saying, putting all the data together, what is it that we think is the original text here? Now, the more we know about external evidence, the more certain we can be in, in at least that half of the equation, and frankly, we have just barely begun to scratch the surface on uh, what the, uh, each manuscript is doing. So let me give a real concrete example. If we had uh, in our databanks 
the evidence of every single manuscript as to what their proclivities would be on certain kinds of texture problems, that could help us to rate their testimony in a given place. If a particular manuscript uh, tended to replace the word Jesus with Christ, even when all the other manuscripts have Jesus, this scribe puts Christ, and maybe he does it five or ten times throughout the space of his whole New Testament, and it never goes in the uh, opposite direction. Well, when that, that manuscript is going to be uh, examined in a particular variant where there's several manuscripts that have Jesus and several have Christ, his testimony is going to be lessened if he reads Christ. But if it reads Jesus, then that becomes a much stronger testimony because that's against his own tendencies. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. Does. Um, I had one follow-up question. You deal okay. with the um, argument that some, more, especially more modern textual criticism, has, uh, conservatives presumably have raised about the coming with the a priori assumption that God is the God of history, almost a, pre, a presuppositional God has preserved his word through history, therefore God has preserved his text. And even though you don't mention him, I think Theodore Latus would probably have, have used that. I think that's correct. Um, what What is attractive about this position and what maybe do you see faulty with this position? Well, if we're going to argue from a doctrine of preservation, then I think we do have some problems. Uh, and, and the reason is I, I don't think that the New Testament or the Old Testament uh, teach their own preservation down to the very words of the text. I think the passages that are used in that direction really need to be exegeted differently. Uh, besides that, the empirical evidence for especially the Old Testament, that we in some places have to come up with conjecture to figure out what the original wording is, uh, tells us that God has not preserved the text in some places to the very uh, wording, although what the conjectures are are a finite number, and we can, we can figure it out on the basis of uh, uh, what options could go there. Uh, that doesn't mean that there is not um, a genuine preservation by God of Scripture, it means that I don't think we should elevate that to a doctrinal level. And when it comes, uh, when it comes to the New Testament, uh, I think that we can say that God has indeed uh, preserved the Scriptures. Again, I don't put this on a, a theological commitment because I don't find it in the text. As Bruce Metzger used to say, I don't think it's safe to hold to a doctrine if it's not taught in the Bible. <laughs> I think that's some very, very uh, prudent uh, advice there. Now, would you follow the argument, though, having said what you just said, that there are really no, I forget if you put it, essential doctrinal differences, but really no um, doctrinal differences when it comes to the variants that we have in credible manuscripts? Yeah, the way I would uh, describe it, and this is, this is purely based on the evidence. This is not a theological commitment at all. It has to do with an investigation of the data. In other words, it's a historical uh, treatment. That is that no essential doctrine, no cardinal belief of the Christian faith is in jeopardy because of any viable variance. And what I mean by that is if a textual variant has some plausibility of going back to the uh, autographic text, uh, it, it does not impact any cardinal belief of the Christian faith. So we right. have, for example, uh, you take the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the Trinity, 
salvation by faith, salvation by grace, those kinds of things, the virgin birth, uh, none of those are impacted by any viable variants. They are absolutely rock solid in the text without the textual problems uh, causing us to question whether that is a true doctrine. Right, even the, the three bear witness in heaven text that even most conservatives would say is not original. Nevertheless, we have the Trinity taught everywhere on the pages of Scripture. Right. I mean, that, that, uh, that was a place where I felt Ehrman was a little bit disingenuous in his uh, misquoting Jesus, where the comma Yohanim, as it is uh, known, First John 5, 7, the three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, uh, these three are one. Uh, that's, that was only found in four manuscripts written in the 16th century, and then four other marginal notes in earlier manuscripts, but the marginal notes are later, probably 16th or later centuries. Uh, and uh, it, it's one that surely does not go back to the original text. No bona fide textual scholar thinks that it does. Uh, and yet it was put into the Textus Receptus in 1522 by Erasmus because of pressure from the Catholic Church to put it in. But when you go back to the church councils and you look at the Council of Constantinople in uh, 381 uh, and then Chalcedon in 425, I'm sorry, 451, uh, what you've got is very strong Trinitarian statements. Well, if this verse wasn't in their Bibles, how could they possibly see the Trinity? And uh, Ehrman would say that they essentially are making it up, that they didn't have any biblical basis for it. And I'd say, well, they didn't have First John 5, 7, but that obviously shows that there must be other evidence in the text to argue for the Trinity because the councils were trying to argue this material on the basis of, of what the text said. Right. Um, Dr. Wallace, in the um, to shift gears a little bit, in the um, final section of your um, article, you talk about the knowledge of the documents, and in one of those sections, you talk about um, discovering the documents. Could you talk a little bit about um, discovering the documents and the work that's going on at the Center for the Stu- um, Study of New Testament Manuscripts? And I, yeah, you, I just, you just got back from um, a trip to Athens, and could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is my sabbatical year from Dallas Seminary, so I've been able to go on expeditions all year uh, starting uh, last May, and it's it's been a long year. I'm, I'm just home now for a couple of weeks, then off to Germany and uh, possibly Romania, then England. But uh, we just got back from a nine-week trip to uh, Greece. Uh, the discovery of the manuscripts, let me give a little background on that. What that essentially means is that in Munster, where the uh, UBS text and the Nestle Allen text are produced, uh, the, the Institute in Munster is really the the uh, keepers of the manuscript data, and they are the ones who assign a new official number to a manuscript once it has been cataloged by them. So until they know about it, it is a manuscript that has not been discovered. Uh, and uh, so if we uh, discover a manuscript that they don't know about. If we if we find one and then we photograph that, that counts as a discovery. We inform Munster and then it's going to get a unique, uh, what's called a Gregory Allod number. Uh, to date, we have something like 5,754 known Greek New Testament manuscripts, but Munster has a backlog from uh, CSNTM of uh, about 75 manuscripts. They are still in the process of uh, trying to catalog. We've got a lot of uh, plates uh, or things on the plate right now. And uh, basically in the last seven years, uh, my center has discovered over 75 manuscripts, which is 
frankly, I'm, I'm astounded by that. That's more than the whole rest of the world combined has discovered that same period of time by something like a factor of four. Uh, so to discover this manuscript, to discover a manuscript doesn't mean to go dig up some mummies in Egypt and find some uh, scraps of papyrus at their toes that we can <laughs> call a manuscript. What it means is to go to a library uh, and to look through the information they got, the, the, we'll look through the catalogs, we'll photograph the manuscripts. Several of these manuscripts are ones that Munster does not know about, so we inform them. Several of them are manuscripts that even the library itself doesn't know about. And that is the real exciting thing. When we discover a manuscript that nobody knows about, including that uh, individual library, that's, that's uh, amazing. And the, the kind that we discover that way are known as palimpsests, typically. A palimpsest is a manuscript that's been scraped over by a later scribe, centuries later, he, who reuses that uh, parchment leaf for some other purpose, but that undertext would be in the way, so he, he erases it. And that undertext may be hundreds of years old, it may be biblical, and now it's almost uh, imperceptible by the naked eye. So we have to photograph those leaves with uh, UV lamps, and as we prepare manuscripts for photography, that's when we discover these palimpsests. We were just in Athens for nine weeks, as I mentioned, and we were at three different museums. Uh, among those three museums, we discovered 24 uh, Greek New Testament manuscripts that Munster wow. did not know about yet. And, and that's, I, I was flabbergasted. That, that's just uh, incredible. This, this whole year, since last uh, May 2008, we've discovered 35, no, now it's 36 manuscripts. We discovered another one yesterday. And uh, what, what that means in this case was there was a lectionary at the end of a minuscule gospel. So there's two manuscripts under the same book covers. And uh, one of my colleagues, Jeff Hargis, discovered that one just yesterday for manuscripts we'd photographed uh, some time ago. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea there's uh, so many were coming to light uh, so recently. Sometimes we sit back and don't hear much about it. We think they've all been found, but that's certainly not the case. <laughs> well, on average, you get about two to three manuscripts discovered each year, most of which are not of great importance. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, when we're discovering this many, we, we, just, we need more volunteers who've had several years of Greek to go through and help us collate these documents uh, because... Uh, we make these discoveries. We're not sure what we've discovered yet, but one of the most exciting things for us, if any of your listeners know uh, a little bit about textual criticism, is we may have stumbled across uh, as many as three family 13 manuscripts in Albania, including what would now be the oldest member of family 13. Wow. And uh, that was uh, phenomenally exciting. That was in 2007. Uh, when we uh, went there, we we went to photograph 13 manuscripts at the National Archive, and they gave us a catalog in Albanian that listed 47 New Testament manuscripts. <laughs> uh, some of these had been known to exist in Albania and had been lost for decades ever since the country became communist in 1945, and it's uh, it, 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 the communist era ended in 1990. But Western scholars simply were not allowed to go in there and photograph the manuscripts, so a lot of the stuff was just unknown where these manuscripts were. But then there were at least two dozen manuscripts on that one trip alone that our new discoveries in Munster is working through to see if it's uh, 24 or is it up to 30 manuscripts that we discovered. Um, in the discoveries you made in Athens of those 24, are they um, minuscules, are they unsealed, any papyri in there, and uh, what books are they from of the New Testament? Great question. Uh, no papyri. Uh, 
papyri are the, the the climate in which papyri have to uh, survive has, has got to be very very dry. It can't be very humid. And Athens is it's kind of like Dallas. It's it's hot and uh, <laughs> a little bit muggy during the summer. And the Greeks don't know what air conditioning is yet. So the whole Mediterranean <laughs> world doesn't know what air conditioning is. I, I think, but, uh, but uh, that's not where you'll find papyri. But the manuscripts are of two sorts in terms of the material they're written on. One is parchment, and the other is paper. And the later manuscripts, many of the later manuscripts were written on paper. I think the number is around 800 of our manuscripts are on paper, which is the most fragile of the three kinds of material used, parchment, paper, or papyrus. Paper is by far the worst, and it's the most recent. We've photographed some books on paper that if you just slam them closed, the whole thing would turn to dust. And it's extremely difficult work because you've just got to be so careful. Uh, the thing is, it, it, it will. I, I've suggested to librarians, don't ever ha- open this book again. It's you can't do it. Uh, and so they've got the digital photographs, and that's going to preserve the images. But as far as these discoveries, the vast majority of them are either minuscules or lectionaries, and uh, those aren't all that exciting uh, to think about getting lectionaries. But I, I, I think at the same time, lectionaries are kind of the underrated manuscripts among New Testament documents. Very few people have studied them in detail, and they, they really do deserve a whole lot more study. Uh, Bruce Metzger argued that uh, we need to look at the lectionaries. You know, these are uh, selected passages that were read for various days, special days, uh, certain... Uh, so there's two different kinds, but I won't get into the details on that. But the, the lectionaries were, were read throughout the year, and it's selected passages, maybe 15, 20 verses from one of the Gospels, and they just skip to another Gospel, the next passage. But part of the, the thing that makes them valuable is that they were part of a liturgical system where liturgy, it, precisely because it's part of the worship of the Church, changes slowly over the centuries. And so sometimes the lectionaries can give us some very helpful information on what happened in earlier centuries, what the text was like. But they also have an impact on the wording of regular manuscripts. Uh, so in, in Mark's Gospel, for example, Mark 6 through 8, there's 89 verses in, in a row that do not ever mention the name of Jesus or call him by any title. It's simply the third person uh, uh, singular verb endings or uh, Altos, you know, and that's it. That's how you only see Jesus in those 89 verses. Well, because of lectionary influence, the name of Jesus now shows up in three places in the later manuscripts. Because if if you're going to read a passage and you start writing, uh, reading in Mark chapter seven, and and uh, you're reading it just for your your lectionary, you're reading that lection for the day. It says he was teaching them. We go, well, who's he? Who are them? <laughs> And so what the lectionaries would do is they'd say, Jesus was teaching the disciples, or Jesus was teaching the crowds. And that's how a lot of the, the wording of the text gets added through that liturgical emphasis back into the regular manuscripts. So the King James Bible, based on the later manuscripts, for example, uh, has a lot more uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, those kinds of things, amen, at the ends of... Uh, uh, books of the New Testament than the older manuscripts, and it's uh, because of the liturgical influences on it. You asked about the kinds of manuscripts we discovered. Uh, Minuscules, lectionaries are the great majority. However, uh, we have also discovered several uncial lectionaries, and uh, I think the earliest we've found so far is 7th century, which is, which is pretty early. 
the oldest Anshul lectionary we have, we, there's only one of them, and it's just a small fragment, it's 4th century, then I think we have one from the 5th, and uh, so those things become very important. But we've also discovered, which is uh, perhaps, uh, probably, it's our most important discovery, uh, an Anshul fragment from Mark's Gospel. And this was a, a palimpsest at the back of uh, a book that was used for some of the purposes where the last two leaves, the scribe um, had run out of parchment. He didn't want to go kill another goat, so he uh, cannibalized a manuscript elsewhere in the library and put these two leaves in, scraped them clean, and wrote out his text. Well, we've had a very difficult time reading it, but we were able to determine that it, it was biblical, and then we were able to determine that it was one leaf was Mark 3, the other was Mark 6. And this ended up being the oldest manuscript ever discovered in Constantinople, or Istanbul, or at the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople, which is kind of like the equivalent of the Vatican for the Orthodox world. And we will be posting on our website, uh, csntm.org, in the uh, very near future, an article that one of my colleagues, Ivan Yang, wrote on the discovery. He was the one who discovered the manuscript. Our best guess on the date is between 3rd and 7th century. We're, we're very confident it's between those two dates and uh, probably leaning towards the earlier rather than the later. If this is as early as the 3rd century, then the leaf from Mark chapter 3 is the oldest fragment of Mark's gospel in existence. So I'd say that's pretty important. That is yeah. really important. <laughs> now, speaking, um, that is extremely helpful. Uh I wanted to go back and ask you a couple, <laughs> a little bit off topic, but but still germane to uh, your article about the role of theology in New Testament textual criticism. Of course, we've already spoken about that just a little bit. But one thing you brought up uh, was this incarnational approach, and uh, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask you about that. How does the incarnation impact the way we do New Testament textual criticism? Frankly, I think the incarnation should impact every aspect of our lives, both our scholarship and and, and how we just conduct our lives as, as human beings, as, as Christians. Uh, the incarnation, one of the things that's been driving my scholarship for years is, is this. When I think about the Bible and the claims it makes for itself, I notice that those claims are set in a historical context. And I see in the Gospels that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, or he was in this location and he performed these miracles. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 that uh, uh, there were over 500 uh, believers who uh, saw the risen Christ, and uh, most of them are still alive. And the reason he says that is to say there is verification of the resurrection. Our faith is grounded in history, uh, and uh, I think the way I, I see even what the Incarnation does is it is God becoming man in human history and intentionally in such a way that we can verify data about him and about God and therefore about the Scriptures. This is a point that F.F. F. Bruce made uh, several years ago, and it's really been driving, I think, most of my theology, that the Incarnation demands that we study the Bible historically instead of taking a view that says, when it comes to Jesus, I'm going to study him historically, but when it comes to the Bible, I'm not going to ask the tough questions because I revere it as the Word of God. Well, if Jesus Christ is both God and man, 
and we ask the tough questions about how could he be man and what does this mean, why is it that when we come to the Bible, we ask the questions about uh, uh, a lot of things, but, you know, this is a problem for inerrancy, I don't want to deal with that question. I don't think that's appropriate, and I think what that actually does is it ends up making Christ the handmaiden to the Bible, and I think it needs to be the other way around. What drives my definition of inerrancy, uh, in fact, is who Christ is and what Jesus said about uh, the text that I think was different from what the Pharisees were saying about the Scripture. So I... I uh, I, I come to the inerrancy of the Bible through my Christology. I come to, to my understanding of canon through Christology, my understanding of uh, soteriology, of course, through Christology, but uh, my ecclesiology, my eschatology, which, as you know, since I'm a Dallas Seminary, I'm all messed up on that. Nah. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you, know, you guys the, are the, sensitive. The, <laughs> that? I said you're, you're a little, you guys are sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what uh, drives... All of my theology has got to be Christ, not just my personal relationship to him, but the Amen. fact that he is telling us in the Scripture, examine these things. And I, I keep remembering the attitude that the Bereans had when Paul visited there after he uh, uh, had to leave uh, uh, Thessalonica under fire in Acts 17.11, where it says that the Bereans were no, more noble-minded than uh, the Jews in Thessalonica because they searched out the scriptures to see if what Paul had to say was true, and they received joyfully the things that he taught them. I think that's a great attitude that says, let's look at the scriptures, let's look at Christ, let's come at this from the position of faith, because he has changed our life. We have had an experience with the risen one that no amount of exegesis or scholarship can diminish and uh, you know, you know, this is this is my presuppositionalism coming out. If I've had an experience with Jesus Christ, where He has changed me, I, I know that He's uh, alive. I know that He's the Son of God. There's no amount of scholarship that's going to diminish that unless I let it happen, and I suffocate the witness of the Spirit in, in my own heart to the degree that He allows me to. But the attitude of the Bereans was, let's examine this stuff, and yet still re- receive this joyfully. The attitude that we have to have about the Bible about all the stuff that we study in Scripture and related to scriptures, let's examine it historically, let's examine it critically, but let's never forget that this is also a worshipful activity on our part. Absolutely. We have to understand that God's Word uh, is authoritative, it's self-attesting, and it does uh, have authority over us, not us over it. But that doesn't mean that we can't study it and that we can't apply textual criticism principles and approaches to it. We just always have to understand that we we need to come to those studies humbly as creatures, not as a creator uh, right. lording ourselves over it. That's excellent. I, I, I appreciate the uh, the statement about how we hold uh, inerrancy uh, in, uh, how should I say this, how our doctrine of inerrancy should come from our Christology. There's sometimes people who take an incarnational approach uh, to the scriptures will uh equate error or weakness with humanity and therefore saying that if scripture is uh a human book even though it is divine in order to be fully human as Jesus Christ was human therefore it must contain error or weakness um i don't yeah, find that helpful I mean at all no I, no that's what uh, i'm saying I mean that, it's a good thing to clarify that's not what i mean by an incarnational approach i mean no in terms, no 
method right. of investigation, not in terms of the analogy that is sometimes drawn, but uh, those differences, right? Yeah, that's excellent. And then we need to understand that who Christ was, that he was first and foremost eternal son of God, uh, autotheos, that he uh, comes and takes on a human nature, uh, but doesn't bear sin or error uh, in any way that, that uh, compromises who he is divinely. And just as God speaks into human history, his word is inerrant and infallible, and though it takes a servant form, it doesn't uh, necessarily have to take on, or it doesn't take on the weaknesses and the sinfulness that humanity uh, has at this time. So that's helpful that, that we do need, I think, to take uh, an incarnational approach so long as we qualify that and understand mm-hmm. uh, the orthodox doctrine of the incarnation first and foremost, and then apply that to how the Spirit inspires the words of men uh, and, and, and uh, invest them with uh, the very God-breathed, theopnistos nature. So that's great. Right. But, I think we should also add that how we define those uh, theological issues, such as our bibliology, canonicity, inerrancy, must uh, come from what the text does say, rather than from our 21st century uh, constructs and what we want it to say. And uh, so I think this is an important issue for us. That, uh, for example, when you think of inerrancy, some Christians say, this means that when I see red letters in my Bible, that Jesus spoke those exact words just like that. Well, of course, that's impossible if he didn't speak in English. But uh, <laughs> uh, at the same time, the, the, the point is that uh, I think most evangelical scholars would say, no, I think we, we have uh, the perfect right to look at this as ipsissima vox, or the very voice of Jesus, but not necessarily the very words of Jesus. And we are allowing the differences among the Gospels to inform what the biblical authors themselves meant when they uh, implicitly held to uh, an inerrancy of the text. Now, Dr. Wallace, I have a practical question because I'm, you know, a, a minister of the gospel and preaching has to be my primary, um, you know, means of seeing the kingdom of God advanced. Um, if I'm engaged in textual criticism, what advice would you have if I come to a passage like John 8, the woman caught in adultery, and come to a point where I'd be convinced that this is not original to John's gospel, but is historically reliable? What advice would you give to preachers um, seeking to deal faithfully preaching expository sermons, text by text, preaching God's word authoritatively, and yet working uh, within the, the, the construct of textual criticism? That's a great question, uh, and I'll, I'll have to answer that in two different ways. Uh, first of all, I would say if you come to the text and you don't believe that it's literarily authentic, and by that I mean that it was not part of the autographic text of John's Gospel, and therefore it's not um, uh, Scripture, but was uh, added later, but, it, uh, but you do believe that it's historically authentic, then you obviously cannot preach it as though it were Scripture. And I think it becomes at that stage very important that you recognize your role as a pastor of the sheep who don't understand these issues, they haven't been to seminary, and you have to be very, very gentle with people as you communicate to them uh, how we are treating a text like this. Uh, I, I've gone through that myself with, uh, in, in various churches where uh, one year I was teaching John's Gospel for a whole year, and before we got to the uh, pericope adulteri, uh, John seven fifty three through eight eleven, 
uh, I spent two weeks on textual criticism. And I explained to the people how textual criticism works and how it is our fundamental task to pursue truth rather than to protect our presuppositions as we look at the data. And by the time we got to the third week and we were ready to go through that passage, uh, they understood the issues, they were well prepared for it, they recognized where I was going to go with the data, and then when I said, I don't believe this is scripture, uh, people were not up in arms about it. But if you just come to a group and say, I'm going to preach this historically even though it's not scripture, you don't give them any kind of background, then they're going to wonder, where else is the sky exactly. falling? And, exactly, exactly. And, and you, you cannot do that uh, to, to uh, the flock. They need to right, right. Um, be given this uh, background. But here's the problem we're facing, is that uh, people like Bart Ehrman have been doing that in Misquoting Jesus and other books on a popular level. And so now the cat is kind of out of the bag, and, and in, a fa- in a sense, I'm, I'm grateful that it is. I think that what we need to do as uh, Christian leaders, as evangelicals, is recognize that we're in a different era now. People get their information off the Internet. They know the critical issues uh, instantly, just so they can just Google it. You know, they have a question, they don't wait to talk to the pastor three weeks later when they can get an appointment. They look on the Internet and they get the information from anonymous sources and they figure that's all they need. But uh, that means that they're far more aware of these issues, but typically from just one side. And so we need to start educating our people a whole lot better than we've done in the past and quit hiding some of these critical issues from them. So that's, that's something that needs to be done. I've, I've been an advocate that we need to relegate to the footnotes uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery in the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel because I don't believe that they're uh, a scripture. And there has been a, a tradition of timidity among translators to keep them in the text precisely because of sales, because it would upset Christians. But, you know, we need to put them in the footnotes and put in a preface to the Bible or a marginal note there. This is why we're doing this. Don't think that there's other textual problems that are 12 verses long. There's two in the New Testament, and the next largest one is two verses. So it's not as if this has happening all over, see. Uh, well, the second part of your question about uh, uh, preaching it historically uh, if you do believe it's historically true, then I, I don't see a problem taking a Sunday to do that. Uh, as an illustration, uh, right around October 31st every year, I, I have over the years done kind of a biography of Luther, and then I talk about Reformation Day and uh, what he nailed to the door of the, uh, uh, the uh, Wittenberg Church. You know, and that's not scripture, but it still is well worth talking about and discussing even in a sermon. Um, the other, the other problem, though, is whether this is actually historically true. And I'm fairly convinced that the story of the woman caught in adultery is a conflation of two different stories that got put together in the in the uh, third century. Uh, Papias actually talks about this kind of story in the early decades of the second century, but it's not exactly the same story. But the interesting thing is he does not say it's from the Gospel of John. He says it comes from the Gospel of the Hebrews, which we no longer have. And consequently, uh, that was one of the stories that was conflated in in with another one. Uh, When you start wrestling with these issues, that, that raises some really hairy problems. One of the things I've been wanting to work on for years and just haven't found the time is I wanted to uh, siphon out the form of the story that would have been uh, the first century form. And, and I, I, I have the method for doing it. I just haven't taken the time. But uh, 
my best sense so far is that, frankly, this story was something that Luke had written up, and it would have gone after Luke 2138, or a shortened form of the story, and it ended up on the cutting floor of his uh, gospel. And uh, for the reasons that I, I don't know yet why it did not make it into his gospel. But it is interesting that the Family 13 manuscripts put this passage after Luke uh, 2138 instead of after John 752. Hmm. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah. I want to... Uh, Point people to the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. That's online at csntm.org. And uh, you can keep your eye on that website for uh, new news and articles as they're posted. Uh, A lot of interesting stuff going on. And uh, you can stay updated there. You can also visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you can find a bibliography and any notes and news regarding what we're doing. Uh, you can also find uh, links to several of uh, Dr. Wallace's books there. We would encourage you to pick them up and read them as well. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>